Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. He's back. Can you hear me all right? There we go. Yep, gotcha. It was like you're you went through a Apache spot of service right when you Yeah right whenever, when we hit record. Whenever you see me do this in about twenty five miles, um yep. there's like a two mile stretch, so just keep yapping yeah. when I get there. But yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, no after worries. that it's smooth sailing. But dude, yeah, we were we were no starting worries. to talk about um some of the, the recent stuff with jujitsu and I know we finished the last episode on that. Mm-hmm. But um I know we're both excited about it, which I think is awesome in a day and age when there's so much depressing news like if you could find anything to be excited about it's important but um you were about to tell me a story and then i'll kind of rehash my story so why don't you tell me where you're at yeah so we had a yesterday morning went um went to class and i I had a really good role with um a buddy of mine named derek and he just got his uh he got his purple belt a few weeks back and uh it's i was i was starting to say it's so funny because i love how we do the promotion deal at our school because it's so informal yeah. And jujitsu tends to, you know, in a lot of jujitsu places, it it's really up to the subjectivity of the professor to decide like when you're ready for a stripe or the next belt color. You know what I mean? There are some places that have like, you know, the you have to attend this many classes and be able to like take a test. And, you know, like there's some of that. But yeah. I think most of it is more of that subjectivity of the professor. Yep. which is cool. And then, and then our two Sam and, and Mel, the couple that own our, our school and our, our professors there, they're even more so that, and they do it kind of on purpose to be as informal as possible. Like they do the surprise in the middle of class, they'll surprise somebody with a belt promotion. Like it's not a huge, like they're trying to bring everybody in to do this thing and make a, a big surprise. And sometimes they'll just like, make sure, Hey, morning class people, they'll like text us separately and they'll be like, Hey, just make sure you're there tomorrow. And yeah. that's it. Like they, they don't tell anybody else kind of a thing. But, um, when we have guys who, who get promoted, oftentimes it's like, you, sh- you probably sh- could have been promoted in most other places a long time ago, Sure, you know, and like in most other places, a lot of our, our blue belts that have been blues for a while could be purples 
or close to Browns in a lot of other places. Sure. You know, like this. Yeah. Yep. Just kind of how it is. And so, uh, all that to say, my buddy Derek, who I was rolling with, is has just recently gotten his purple, but I will say is like unreal. Yeah. And he plays a lot of uh, he plays a lot of inverted stuff, which is like a hilarious stereotype of purple belts, right? right. Like as soon as you get to purple, you just go inverted. Yeah. And uh, but he does a lot of uh, uh, Ted grip, which is the the bottom of the lapel around either the backside of the rib cage on the other side, or you like go through between the outside of the leg and then put your foot into the into the lapel right next to where you're gripping with your hand and it's the most annoying like it's the when you're on the receiving end of it i'll say it's one of the more annoying positions to be caught in because it's literally like you're not even holding this this side over here and i can't move this side because the way you've got my own gi lapel wrapped around my own elbow on this opposite side or whatever and so anyways we had this like really good role and he got me stuck in a couple of those. And I, I've I've really kind of embraced and come around on what I consider wins when I'm rolling. Hell like yes. it's not always it's not always me getting an offensive win or like I did something I was trying to do. Like the one yesterday with Derek, I literally had two times where I'm like, I'm this could very well be the end of the round. And I was able to just like pin my hip up and, and kind of shrimp one direction and get out. And I'm like, hell yeah. Like I'm, I was pumped about that yesterday. Like I did it two different times in two different positions. He essentially had me in a crucifix in one (laughs) getting me from that, that Ted grip position and then rolled me behind and got into a crucifix. And I had like bridged up over the top of him all the way over the top and had just enough clearance to like pull my elbow through yes. and swim it around and basically get to north south on him. Yep. And I was like ecstatic about that. So it was, it's one of those things where a lot of people think like, oh, I didn't get a like, the you know, nobody got a tap or nobody got a submission or like I wasn't hitting these offensive positions. And then I'm in here like I am pumped that I was like two different times. I thought, you know, if it was even a couple months ago, I would have been toast in those two positions. (laughs) But like I had a moment where I'm like, Ooh, I can actually recognize where I am and I see how I can get out of this and then did it. So it's, it's more like if I I'm recognizing patterns or positions kind of before they're being set up, like I know if he's here, this is where he's going next. And I can play that having that sort of, you know, pre-thought or premonition so to speak on where he's going to go yeah you know what i'm saying yeah well i do and like one of the things that's really helped me a lot so i have i've really been the duality of myself within jiu-jitsu so i'm a very aggressive person by nature i've been an explosive athlete my entire life and you know when i get into something you know take my recurve for example yeah i went from absolutely no knowledge never drawn one outside of just backyard banter with some friends to I'm in Argentina hunting a red stag in three months, you know, and for somebody that picks up a compound bow, not to insult that, but there are mechanisms that make that a little bit shorter learning curve. Recurve challenges people forever. And I'm not to say I'm an expert, but the amount of work that I did in three months probably paralleled some people's two years. And that's what I thought was going to happen with jujitsu. I thought I'm just going to go in here I'm going to smash myself day in and day out. I'm going to go as hard as I can go. And really, honestly, for a year, I pretty much now can admit I got better at jiu-jitsu, but I also spun my wheels a lot. Uh, Mm. I was always 
really beat up. I was always nagging little injuries that kind of prevented me from training uh, better. And, you know, I, every day was a loss because I didn't tap somebody or I didn't, you know, I didn't beat a guy that had beat me five times in a row. And as a beginner, that's what you like. Everyone goes through that. You should not tap anybody that has any training experience at all as a beginner. Like you're probably mm. going to use strength or some of your attributes yep. and you might get that. But from, from a jujitsu to jujitsu standpoint, it's an impossibility. So right. I, like you, when I came back after this hunting season, this will be, I'm going on three years now. Um, after coming back from my hunting season, you know, I was, I was really just fried from as much hunting as I did. I wanted to go back into jujitsu and really, I wanted to improve at the rate that I felt like I could, but my mechanism was doing it wrong. Something that I mm. was doing was not allowing me to learn as well or as in depth as some of my peers that were coming in. And this, yeah. this one guy named Will, uh, he, he just became one of those training partners that I look to. Like when you look around a room, I'm willing to train with any and every single person in the room. Uh, yeah. but, but as a, as a competitor, you have to kind of find those guys with a similar mindset, a similar build, similar technique, and then even those above you and sometimes a little bit below you. So Will became one of those guys that I could pinpoint. This guy comes to class. He knows his technique. He hammers his technique. He's really strong. He's really big. And uh, he became just like one of those guys that I sought out. And as I was telling you before we started recording, you can't get your bullshit by Will. Like, I can I can power and I can be explosive. Well, he's powerfully and explosive too. So now mm -hmm. it's like we're a guy that I might be able to just dominate because I'm 30, 40% more, more strong or, or, or explosive. Well, Will, it might come down to that I'm 10% stronger in one area and he might be stronger in another. Um, right. You know, and so on and so forth. So it evens things out. And, man... Because he is a technician, he just exposed me and exposed me and exposed me and exposed me. But because of that and because of like when we're drilling or rolling, it's always like you got to tighten it up. You got to tighten it up. I can get my arm out through your shoulder, you know, stuff like that um, not, and not being an asshole about it, you know, like really, truly trying to help me get better. And yeah. yesterday we were rolling around um, and, you know, just really working hard, both of us. We kind of committed before the, the round started. We were going to do 10 minutes. We were going to work positions only, like we were going to work to a point of dominance, kind of recognize that, and then, all right, now you escape, and I've got to fight your sweep, and then we've got to go, you know, we get to a sweeping position, and then the fight would start over again kind of thing. Hmm. So mm -hmm. it was just 10 minutes of this work and continuous flow, and then we were like, okay, let's see who can finish this out and chase the submission. And we'd been working Kimuras, and if you know anything about it, uh, Keylock Kimura, it's fucking amazing. So, like, yeah, your typical Kimura, mm -hmm. but this one wraps around, and instead of just grabbing your own wrist, you reach around under your elbow and lock it in behind, grabbing their tricep. So it's not only a bicep slicer, but it is also an arm shoulder, or like the knee, or I'm sorry, the elbow shoulder break as well. So that's yeah. what I was going for, and Will, and that's what we've been working on a lot of with some of these Kimura traps. So Will is like hyper defensive, and you know when you get those things where you're like the deer in the headlights because you don't know what to do even though the door is wide open? Like, yep. oh, here, here's the opening that I'm looking for, but I don't know. Yep. And uh, sure enough, he was doing this little maneuver trying to keep me up from getting the Kimura. And it basically equated to an opening for an arm bar. And I suck at mm. arm bars. Like, I really, really suck at arm bars. 
And the reason being is I've always kind of been in a place of desperation or hope. Like, I hope I get this arm bar or I have to get this arm bar because I snuck his arm out while he was killing me. So mm. um, it just so happened that I saw the opening, but I've been working on my control, my, my technique and like securing the arm. And sure yeah. enough, it just worked out. And like, I, you know, not emotional, like is in tears, but just like the pride of knowing that I did something that I've worked really, really hard to like fix some of the some problems. But I'm also looking at this guy after the, after the meet or the match. And I'm like, I would have none of that. I would still be trying to overpower guys arms from a place of hope and desperation. If it were not for will taking the time, every role we go telling me I can expose you right here, or I can get my arm out or I can, yep. you know, tighten that knee up. And that's every single teammate I have. And one of the cool things about jujitsu is whether that person respects, loves, and cares about your progress or absolutely hates you. It's actually probably better if they hate you because they want to beat you so bad. So, <laughs> right. so, so if you can take those lessons that that person is pouring into you via their technique and their power and all that stuff, your teammates, aside from the instruction, are your best learning tool. So when you get that little thing, it's not the arm bar and it wasn't the tap. The thing that was the actual victory for me was controlling the arm. That was mm. the, that was the victory yep. because if you give me your arm fully extended, like or if we're working spider web and an EBI rule set, I will get your arm. But it was getting to the place where I can get your arm yeah. under control so that I don't lose it. So it's very easy to look at the photograph that I sent you and I just posted it on Instagram as like, holy shit, he got the arm bar. No, I got the setup for that arm bar. Yeah. And that's what I'm hanging my hat on. It's those little it's those little minutia, man. It's so freaking small. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about, um, how, you know, the first couple of classes, I, I still remember the way Sam had described it, where he had said, you know, a lot of people, when they, when they learn a technique, they want to learn the finish. Yeah. You know, like it, you want to, you know, I want to learn how to do, uh, an Americana or I want to learn how to, you know, do a Kimura. Right. And it's like, okay, we will, but it's like, you have to learn how to get to this spot. And then from here, get to this spot. And then from here, get to this spot. And then if you're available to get it, here's how you would go from here. So he's like, there's four steps prior, at least depending on what you're being given. Yeah. You know, cause even when, especially cause obviously when you're in a live role, it's not like you're going to be like, Hey, I'm going to go for Kimura. Let me set this up for 10 seconds right. before you know, you have to see what, where they are, where you are and be like, here's, Oh, look, I can get to my first position. Now, look, yeah. I can, I can really smash him here and make him uncomfortable and kind of take the breath out of him. I'll have time. I'll sit here. Now I'll move to my second position. Yeah. You know, it's like, there's little steps of it. And he's, and it was always, that was, I think probably one of the first moments where I'm like, Oh, it's not, I need, I'm learning how to do moves. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm learning, I'm learning setups and I'm learning how to react based off of what is being given in yeah. front of me. Well, that's one of the cool things that Scott does with us. Uh, Scott's our instructor. Uh, we refer to him as Sifu and yeah. he's, just, he's just a master of so many disciplines. And a lot of times he'll take a, he'll take a jujitsu move, you know, like a, let's say a S mount or even like a side mount and, yep. uh, or side control. And he will, uh, he'll show us what we're actually doing. 
but he'll plant the seed of like, okay, if you ever see an MMA fight, you'll see a guy look for this move off of side control. Um, right. And you'll see this a lot of times. And you know what? If you're going for that head and arm and it fails, and he'll like whip around into like two or three other submissions or, you know, repositionings from that, you know, from the move that we're learning. But I wanted to share something with you personally, yeah. but it, it fits here too. Um, I took a private with our assistant instructor, Adam. He's, he's one of our black belt. And Adam is like, you know, I don't want to quote his weight. I don't know exactly, but I'm going to guess he's like 175. Was, was Adam, did, did Adam come to Winter Strong last year? Was he the one that I met last year? No, he didn't come down. Who was that? Who, um, who was that that was with you last year? He came for like that first night and then oh, lost the next was, day. Uh, that was Chapman. That was Corey Chapman. He's a. Oh, okay. Yeah. he no, So he's a okay. strength coach at a local high school and he used to roll there a lot. And he just got, gotcha. he got a new baby coach. Yep. Okay. Okay. I remember there was somebody. So, okay. Go ahead. But Adam is like 175 pounds. Um, okay. Like 180 pounds maybe. But man, very smooth, very technical, very, very mobile. And. You know, he's, he's the juxtaposition to my, to my game. You know, he's like, yep. he, he can pressure you. He can be light. He can move around and I'm a pressure guy. So we were talking about jujitsu as a whole. And the thing I love about taking a private with Adam is I'm very, give me the why, like help me understand the why and yeah. I will, and I will do it relentlessly. If it's just like, put your hand here. It's like, okay, well, why not put my hand an inch over? Well, there's a very specific why. You want your hand in this place, not here. And we were talking about how like jujitsu is mathematics. You know, the, the maneuvers, the positions are mathematics. They're always two plus two equals four. But how you get to those positions and the, the way that you use those positions is poetry. And that becomes the art of jujitsu. So it's like yeah. you have to learn math before you can get creative within mm -hmm. the mathematics you know and that becomes yeah. that really does become mm -hmm. the art because even though adam and i will end up in a similar position how we get there how we hold our weight when we're there how we you know utilize certain aspects like it may be a you know i might need my elbow for balance whereas he might spread his knees a little wider that's the poetry yeah oh you're cutting in and out on me i think you might be hitting that spot in yeah, the road you're telling, close, talking to me about so um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll talk for a couple of minutes while yep. you get through that spot. So, um, yeah, the, the thing that, it, and that's a really great example using the math first as kind of the basics, because the example, as you were, as you were talking about it, the example I kept thinking of, that's almost the exact same thing is, I mean, we talk about it all the time, but it's like playing music, you know, like you have to understand the basics in theory right? Like understand here, you know, here are your basic chords. Here's how they move on the, like you can't start flying together a guitar solo without knowing where notes are on the, on the fretboard. You right. can't start doing this, all this improvising on a piano or even, even on a drum kit when you're just trying to mess around with rhythm and doing all these things without understanding like the basics of like time signatures or That's understanding where all these, where all these things are on, on the key sheet. Right. And so it's like, th that's a perfect example because it is literally just like that. You have to understand while you're in these positions, this is, this is the elementary school math of jujitsu in these, you know, in these several things. And it's actually way more than several, but it's like, if you understand all of these to a certain point, now you've got, this much room 
to be creative with the stuff that you already know. Yes. And then it's like, now you move up to a lot level and there's, and here's your fifth grade math, right? Like here's division and all this stuff. There's new concepts. There's new, these new things. And then you learn all this stuff really well and you get it down. Now you can be improvising with this stuff. And so it's like this, almost this pyramid, but a lot of, and it's for the same reason, like with the example I gave where you, where everybody's just trying to learn the finishing move. Everybody wants to be like, show me this stuff up here that looks really cool. Yeah. But it's like, you need to understand like this, this one move is actually three moves put together, but you don't understand the three moves that it takes to do that one. Yeah. Do you think that, uh, do you think that we're going to see a reduction in greatness because people are seeking the highlight reel version without doing the hard cemented foundations? Or do you think that, do you think that's a very American kind of, uh, or, or Americanized or like, first world problem you know what i mean like there's always going to be some kid puerto rico playing baseball you know what i mean like there's always going to be something like that but on the american spectrum where it's like if you're not the best you're nothing like quote unquote if you're not the best you're Mm -hmm. nothing you ain't first you're last yeah do you think people are (laughs) bypassing the fundamental stuff to try to be great now uh, kind of like I was talking about myself with jiu-jitsu. I, I bypassed mm. the fundamentals because I wanted to be better than I actually was. And um, it, it ended up biting me. But it, I could have presented it in a way through a medium that I was much better than I was. You know what I mean? So I do. And I, yeah. Is that, American I, pro- is that an American I, problem? I would say maybe not, maybe not uniquely American, yeah. but... I think it's more, and I don't even know if I'd say it's generational because there's a lot of, there, there's a lot of the older generations who have kind of similar, you know, and I guess they're probably, I, I would think it'd be more generational than location based. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's, it's not going to be necessarily um, just American stuff, but I do think it's happening more with the, exposure to different methodologies that people are exposed to younger. So like if we're talking about all these sports examples, right? Like we we've, we've talked about all of the, the AAU worlds of specialization with kids in baseball and basketball. And it's like, if you're thinking you have any shot at, at playing professional sports or even high level collegiate sports, they want you in specialized year round baseball leagues at nine, you know, like it's not anything that's and and I would without being super involved in that world, I would say yet because I have no idea in, you know, seven or eight years where my oh, oldest coming. is going to want to be. You know what I mean? Like yeah. what what route he wants to pursue. But without being in, involved in any of those, like you all, all you hear is they're missing basic levels of athleticism. Because they're so hyper specialized in the sport from a skill standpoint. But what's also and it's funny, I actually just saw I think it was on Twitter. Somebody had this tweet and they had a group. It was two pictures and it was a group of probably 15, 16 year old boys from, I think, probably the early 60s. And they were all maybe early 50s, early, like around the middle of the century. And they're all standing like outside this, you know, general store sitting on a bench. And it's like middle of summer because they've all got their shirts off and they all look really lean and all this kind of stuff. Like they look like they're just, you know, they've been outside working or whatever, but they're lean and they're young. And uh, and the other picture was a group of like high school athletes 
now that oh, are, yeah. I mean, extremely fit and look like monsters, right? But the caption was the 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 group on the right, which is the the, the now athletes would beat your grandfather's football team by 200 points if they played today. But those boys in that picture in the 50s and 60s would beat the crap in a fight out of the modern athletes right now. And they're like, where is that? Where does that disconnect happen? Like, because it can't just be that they're such better athletes because the ones that are on the left were still lean and fit, but they were 100% right when they said this group over here would destroy like in a fight just based on toughness and and that kind of like farm strength type of stuff, the group that's even the probably better athlete. You know what I'm saying? It was just such a weird like image to see because you're like looking at them, you're like, these guys are – mutants over here and yes they would absolutely destroy every sports team throughout history in the sport but it's like and then there's this point where it's like this is all the farther that that athleticism takes you and it's pretty much at the limits of this sport you know what i mean oh i think i dropped you so yeah it was a it was a really funny and i'll see if i can find it because if i can find that tweet again i'll put it in um, I'll put it in the show notes because it was a really, I mean, it was one of those ones that it kind of stopped me for a minute to make me think this is a really wild comparison because we just assume that everything now athletically is better than it used to be. And from a skill standpoint, that's probably true. Yeah. But well, then just raw athleticism, it's like there, there's, there's gaps there. And why does those gaps exist so much? Do you think it? Do you think that equation of then versus now comes down to a lot of these mutant athletes, a lot of these super performing athletes? That is their requirement by their parents, like just to play sport. Whereas a 50s, 60s kid, probably, hey, you got to clean your room and you got to help your dad mow the yard before you can go to play baseball with your friends. Mm. So I think some of that stuff, that tenacity, and just that general like toughness comes off the field and i think a lot of our i mean think about it you got a little boy five six years old he's never allowed to be his fully aggressive self because he has to play within the rules right you can't hit little billy you can't go hit little johnny Mm -hmm. but you know what down at the sandlot you can beat the shit out of somebody (laughs) you know like i don't know how many times i never ever once except after uh, except after one game in lee county which i'll have to talk about sometime because that story is amazing um, I've been in a fight in, in relation to a sport on field, right? Mm-hmm. Backyard football, backyard basketball, uh, baseball at the park, uh, shit, capture the flag, brutal beatdowns, brutal <laughs> beatdowns. We grew, I grew up on a street with 17 kids. I think I talked about, you know, one guy, uh, he, he drug overdosed. Another guy got his throat slit selling Coke. I mean, these are the kids I grew up with, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, all of us heathens. But I was the youngest by like three years. So I'm like, the rock, oh, okay. you know, I'm the yeah. punching bag. Hey, let me pick him up behind his back with his arms behind his back. And you guys just punch the shit out of him. That was me. Yep. But I was, it also made me tough as shit, you know, and because um, I wanted to play. And if you were a pussy, you just weren't going to get to play. So mm-hmm. all of that stuff and all those lessons and like the time, the first fucking time I stood up for myself against a bigger kid. Like my balls dropped two inches after that scenario. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I had those moments on an organized sports field. Yeah. So I think there is a legitimacy to what you're talking about there 
yeah, 200 points because these kids are eating perfect foods. They're under perfect coaching situations. They're they're playing with basically a drafted team of all-stars from their area. Of mm. course they're going to beat five kids on basketball from the small county farm community. Like, of course they are. But, hey, let's let's put a, put those kids in a farm field. You know, I remember I, w- I worked with a guy named Michael. We did tobacco. And uh, I don't know if you've ever fooled with tobacco at all, but what you do is you cut the you cut the tobacco and you get, you know, a number of sticks and then you lace them on a wooden stick and you throw them over your shoulder and then you, you long end it. You put all the weight on one end and you kind of long ended up onto the wagon. Well, I was strong and that was like people knew I was strong. I was already lifting weights. So we were putting sticks on the wagon after we'd cut it. Well, this kid, Michael, comes along three sticks at a time and is like, Goosh just like over mm-hmm. his shoulder hand these things and never played anything like never played a sport, never did anything, just farmed his whole life. Swear yep. to God, that guy could break your arm just by shaking your hand, you yep. know? So it is interesting to me, the psychology of a child through their experiences that result in athleticism. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. The, like, and, like, I mean, like, the, like the Dominican kids or the Puerto Rican kids or like inner city That's what I was kids, just going to talk about. Yep. You know, go for it. Sorry, man. The No, it was good because that was the exact example I was going to give because, uh, you know, mutual friend of ours, Roman, was a coach uh, for the Orioles affiliate down in the DR for the last couple of years yeah. working with a lot of those and they were like teenage kids that they would bring up and, you know, he, he was a strength coach for them. But part of his job was also like prepping them for the Americanized version of the sport, right? Like teaching them English to have to, to do in press conferences and all this kind of stuff. But he would tell us, you know, how many kids down there are, are using, and I saw a video of it actually recently. There's a video of a kid using a tire, uh, a tire on a tire. So like the tire on the ground is laying flat and then there's one vertical inside that tire to hold it steady. Yep. And that's his T that he's hitting off of. And they actually said that that's a better T because the feedback it gives you when you hit the tire versus like, cause it's going to smack you all the way back where if you have a T that you're regularly hitting off of, it's just going to knock it over and you're not getting the the poor feedback from where your swing is coming through. And so, but he's like, it's stuff like that. And then they're also hitting with like brooms, like literal broomsticks and they're hitting sunflower seeds that are being tossed to them, you know, like, so the things that they're developing are outside of the sport, but not necessarily different than the sport. Right. You know, like it's all, it's all things that are feeding into the actual skill of the sport, but you're not throwing a baseball. You're not hitting with a, with a metal bat and hitting a baseball. Like it's all these other that are really fine tuning a lot of this stuff. And I think some of the, we had a, there was a really un, kind of that same kind of guy that you were just talking about. We had in, in high school, his name was Dylan Doughton. And, uh, he was two years younger than me. And so when I was senior, he was a sophomore and he had played up to play varsity because of just how tough and strong he was. Literally, he never played football until he was like in eighth grade. And he was literally just like your, your perfectly imagined Southern Idaho, like farm kid, like worked with cattle, moved hand lines, like did all the stuff that we all did, but he was also bred to be just a giant. And yeah. so like he came in as a 16 year old and played varsity with us. And the dude's hands were like a, an oven mitt on my hand and yeah. like had giant hands, giant thick wrists. He was like six foot one and just brute. 
And like, we're just like, just give him the ball and get a couple of our good guys and just let him mow over dudes. You know, like he was goal line. He was our goal line guy, you know, but those, he was, he didn't really like want to lift weights. He didn't want to go in and do workout until he got older. You know, when he was junior, senior, I remember hearing that he was like, he's taking it seriously now. But those first couple of years, he's like, I don't really need to, (laughs) like, I'm already, I'm already stronger than anybody on this field, (laughs) you know, like, so it was that, but those those things that you develop, like you said, that aren't in the sport. Like I just, even the stuff that we used to do and I'm by, I mean, I'm five, nine and a half on a good day. And like when I was at race weight, I, I raced at 173. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? Like I'm not big by any means. I'm strong for my size, but I, I completely attribute that to all of the things that I did that had nothing to do with sports growing yeah. up. You know what I mean? So I do think like what, with the example of those two groups, there's such the hyper specialization that a lot of the foundation of strength in just like, and I was just talking with this about this with uh, Logan Gelbrick the other day. Um, who coaches out of Deuce Gym in, in Venice, California, because they do a ton of like like strongman implements and exercises or like their baseline GPP stuff yeah. because he says there's such high carryover to other barbell or dumbbell or kettlebell events when you're lifting stones, you're lifting bags that shift, you're doing all these other movement patterns that, re- that do so much more for you. And it's like that was the stuff. Like, we weren't training strongman stuff. But yeah. we were doing those exercises, like throwing hay bales into the back of pickups and like picking up a, a 25 foot long hand line, walking with it, hooking <laughs> it back up to the other end of the hand line and then doing that for 800 feet worth of or 800 yards worth of hand line, four different lines across. You know what I mean? Like we were doing stuff like that every single day. I, I mean, I was doing a lot of those handline movings when we were like, I don't know, nine, 10 years old was the first time I started doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And so when you have all of these outside sport, it really, I mean, really GPP is kind of the best example or, or the best phrase that I can give it like general physical preparedness. That's, that's ultimately what it is. And I tend to think of GPP as life training, so to speak, rather than like I'm preparing my baseline strength for a sport, even though that is what it's doing. So there's this really interesting thing and you see, I mean like the, the, the hyper examples of the sport specialization, I think everybody probably points to baseball, right? With especially pitchers that are throwing, I mean, on, on a regimented schedule, but everybody's playing year round AAU basketball. Everybody's playing year round, uh, I, I think obviously there's some of that in football because you see guys like especially quarterbacks that all they do is work on throwing mechanics and learning how to read defenses. And they're, you know, they're treating it as a job by the time they're 11, 12 years old, knowing that this is the path that I am working to pursue. And I don't think that level of. I don't know if idolization, maybe idolization is the is the maybe the wrong word. I, mean, I don't even know if idolization is a word but uh if that is the word i'm i'm using of of sport at a higher level that is that's more so now than i think it's ever been before because of what we do with athletes as celebrities there's a level of i i want to be a professional athlete and it, it obviously probably started a lot more with guys like michael right in the 80s and 90s everybody obviously wanted to be like mike so 
Oh, Brandon's hopping back in now. We lost him for a couple of minutes and I was filibustering there. So let me get him back in. What I, w- I was, I w- I'll lead you, I'll lead you into this. Cause I wanted to get your thought on this. So, um, what I was saying while, while you were gone, as I think a lot of, uh, the differences in these two groups that we're talking about, the, is the idea of I'm going to do this sport. Like my dream is this sport. Yeah. Like that's the end game is me being a professional or whatever at the sport. When before it was like, this is just something that we did because it was fun. Like we were good, you know, we were good for our time or we were good in our area and it was awesome. But it's like, there, there wasn't this idea that I'm going to grow up and make millions of dollars. And, and even still 99% of kids don't even today, but there's more of that there's more of that assumption that they will be that, that a lot of these things have been created in the last decade, decade, 15 years or so. Well, let me ask you a question uh, about that. So, you know, there's a, there's a couple of baseball programs around here. Uh, Let's just say that between jerseys, travel, the coaching instruction, membership fees and all that. Mm -hmm. And this is a year round Mm -hmm. deal. Let's just say it's, it comes out to about a thousand dollars a month. Okay. So you coach yep. your kid or you put your kid in this program from six to 18, 12 years, it's 144,000. Just call it 150 grand. Is that $150,000 equatable to the investment return of your child? Or would you be better off getting your child paid, sending them to work with someone, you know, early on, like maybe it's a lawn mowing business. Maybe it's, you know, like I did, you carry some of the the cement to the bricklayers or you do whatever it was from a young age. I was working. My first tax paying job was at 14 at KFC. And I had been working for a few years at that point. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Whether it was helping my dad, helping my neighbors, you know, I was always doing something physical and you know, would I say that I've turned out all right? I mean, I'm, you know, I've, I've got a, ton of problems but i've also been a very high level athlete and i think some of the the resolve as an athlete has come from resolve earned in that way i just don't know that one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a kid to play baseball for a program in which they're not going to go to college for it or they may not go you know to college for baseball they will may never ever play for any money for baseball so is that the best place to be putting our money? Not saying don't put your kid on the team, but I'm saying find a team that makes sense. You know, mm. does, does it have to be this thousand dollars a month with the major league uniforms, uh, traveling to these, these exotic tournaments and these whatever. And is, you know, that's where I have a problem with it because I grew up around some kids that actually went to the major leagues. I know two guys personally that I grew up in or around that went to the major leagues. Mm-hmm. Not one of them had the money to go to camps. Not one of them had private instruction. You know, like they just worked really, really hard. And here's here's a little tip for the parents that are like making highlight reels of their kid at eight years old. <laughs> Scouts found those guys. Like, yeah, it, you know, if a kid is putting up numbers, people will find you. You know, mm-hmm. like trying to manufacture numbers or like moving your kid from one team where he doesn't shine to another where he's the all-star like constantly playing that game is only going to hurt your kid Mm -hmm. i think catering 
catering to your kid, giving them every single lesson they ever need in the form of instruction rather than failure becomes wisdom, I think is a problem. So that $1,000 a month might feel real good when you go talk to your buddies and you tell them that, oh, my kid's on this prestigious team. My kid has this $700 bat for his little league team or whatever. It's like I knew guys personally as a, you know, as a kid. And then as a strength coach, I know guys personally that have nothing, nothing, and they make it. So that's what I'm kind of interested in myself. Um, Have you ever heard of the book, The Rise of Superman? Yes. Okay. Along that same line, like what makes these people beyond the genetics? It's like, it's not just genetics because they're six, seven, 250 pound dudes, not in the NBA. Right. You know, so what is it? What is that mental factor? What is Mm -hmm. that? external life factor that makes people have the grit uh and really maybe the just the the capability to get there i don't know not not every 67 250 pound man is created equal but how how, what separates one from the other it's not just all physical you know it is yeah because i'm thinking you know what we see for the nba example like right now there are dudes that exist. And it's just the funniest argument to me, like, because it is kind of the same argument we're making about toughness in past and present, but anybody, I understand because it was when they grew up, like everybody that's like bird would drop 40 on you today. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, if you take like, who's the, the third best player, third or fourth best player on the warriors today, it would probably be like Jordan Poole. Or yeah. somebody like that, like it's Steph, Clay, Draymond, and then probably Jordan Poole, right? Yeah. You drop Jordan Poole in the middle of the 1960s, and he is the great. He like people would look at him like an alien, yeah. like he would literally put up a hundred points on most of those teams. Yeah, you know what I mean, like. And and we have the 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 hundred point game and Wilt and Wilt was amazing for the time. Wilt was like six nine and a half six ten. Like there's guys that bring the ball up the court now that are bigger than Wilt was. Yeah, like that are ball handlers and shooters that are. I mean, like Giannis is seven foot tall, and he plays point guard. Like that is unheard of in the history of that sport. Well, see, that was the European impact. I think you know you had guys like like with Dirk. Yeah, you had guys like Bird, 6'10", uh, small forward, shooting guard kind of a position. You know, he was interchangeable with the two and the three. Um, and then Magic Johnson running uh, shooting guard at 6'9". So there was examples early on that that was going to be a flavor. You know, like there yeah. was going to be a, a ball-handling big man. But the European game is so much different than the NBA. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's more of a finesse game, I think. Like, whereas the NBA became the highlight reel uh you know dunks and all that kind of stuff the european game almost mirrored the growth of the women's basketball highlighted passing uh, making sure that you were setting hard screens and all this kind of stuff well then the nba went global you know and now you've got this influence of of all these uh international players coming into the league it's really changed the game and uh, you know aside from all the the bullshit that i hate about the nba the level of play is outrageous yeah. You know, are they out there playing defense like they did in the 80s and 90s? I don't think so. But just the athleticism, the athletes yeah. on the floor, they're incredible. You know, yeah. argu- arguability about the game, 
I don't really care about that argument. I do care about observing and witnessing the greatest level of NBA players we've ever seen. Like that's yeah. that's interesting to me, you know. Yeah, and it's and my my favorite argument with that always is like, oh, you take, you know, you, you take LeBron and put him in in 1990 against the Pistons, and that you know, like, okay. True, like he's not going to be able to get away with the stuff that he gets away with now, but he's also 6'10", and when he was at his peak, like right at the end of this time with the Heat, when he was when he left it, those last two years with the Heat and his first year back with the Cavs, his playoff form, he was playing at 265. Yeah. Like, and, the, the, and pr- one of the fastest best ball handlers on the floor anytime he's on the floor. So, like, you take that, doesn't matter if you drop him in the 90s, he's going to still be effective. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's just, there's a level of, you, there's a level of you can't stop this-ness. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, yep. that, like, a lot of these guys have. And so, the, I don't know what it would be that took them, like, literally, like, the evolution of a basketball player in the last, even 15 years. Maybe yeah. not even, you know, because Kobe really was, like, I, I would consider him like the last of the old guard type of players. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he was the, he was the one who, because he played in both times, like yeah. he was around in the mid nineties and was still a part of that transition. So he like was around and got it. But after kind of he hit latter part of his career and then he was done is when you see like now everybody's shooting from 35 feet. And the ones yeah. that aren't shooting from 35 feet are seven foot ball handlers. Like there yeah. was this crazy leap forward that doesn't make any sense. And then you see it the same in all in like other sports too. Like now the um like the quarterback position in the NFL, like there's half a dozen or more guys that play that read option. The quarterback is one of the most athletic guys on the field when before yeah. it was like don't let him get outside the pocket because he'll get destroyed because he can't run type of player. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Brittle knee syndrome. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Bernie Kozar like, takes off. Yeah, yeah, Pat, Peyton, Man- Peyton Manning takes off running. You're like, oh, no, don't go down. <laughs> he did not look anything athletic except throwing <laughs> no, a football. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, not at all. Dude, um, do you think – okay, so I, I generally – I'm a sports fan. Yeah, uh, I am not a current active NBA fan. You know, I'll, I'll I, I know some of the players. I know the scores. I see that kind of stuff. Do you think that the NBA needs a heel? The NBA needs a, a villain guy to come in that's just a dog, like somebody that's slapping the floor. Steve so, Wojciechowski at Duke. Let's fucking go. And it means it. Not like, like the thing that's crazy about the NBA right now is what these motherfuckers wear to the arena. <laughs> is what yeah. people care about as right. much as what they do on the floor. Like yep. these, these are, they are so much entrenched in like, they're all political now. They're all wearing designer shit. Half of them are wearing dresses, you know, like th- th- it's not just about their basketball talent. It's like these yeah. figures. I wish there was some dude that would just come out. Like, like I'm saying, like just a dog, like somebody well, that grew that I, grew up watching ESPN two NBA classics, and that's the only basketball games he's ever watched. He's like Bill I, Lambeer. Yeah, you know, like just, yeah. I, I think know. there's I think there's two, and I think I there's on, I think there's only two, and they're both actually still in the playoffs right now because one is Draymond. 
Yeah. Because like he, his whole deal is I want to fight and get thrown out of games because he yeah. thinks getting thrown out of games motivates the team to play after he's, to- after he's tossed and to their own detriment. Sometimes like a couple years ago when they lost to the Cavs, it was literally because he cost them game six yeah. when he got tossed yeah. and they lost that game and then they lost yeah. game seven. So, I mean, like it's super high risk, super high reward with Draymond because he tries to be Rodman, but does it a hundred times amplified? You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But I think the other one who doesn't necessarily do it from the like trying to start stuff with guys, but just plays and has the the ability to, and we've seen it in this playoffs, if, if you've paid attention to any of them, is Jimmy Butler. Yeah. Like for Miami. Because he yeah. literally, with zero anybody on his team in the first series that they played when they uh, when they took out Milwaukee as a eight seed like they were eight took out Milwaukee as a one he had like a 46 point game and a 52 point game or something like that in games three and four like basically by himself and literally decided I'm gonna go in we're not losing I'm gonna come in and just destroy all of you and like nobody does that like that anymore you know no and I hope he comes back from that ankle you know like I know it'd be cool to see him get back on the court but that dude's funny as hell. Have you ever watched some of his? He's like, great. His blooper reels. <laughs> He's great. That dude He's is great. absolutely nuts, man. I, Th- uh, that's one of the the myths, like the one of the mythology things about the last like decade that I've heard. Uh, people are like, we need to know what happened right here because there's m- just mythology about the Timberwolves practice where he uh, blew up at the entire team. And yeah. uh, why can't I think of the the guy the other one's name who's I think still up there? The the the. Uh, the center. Oh, he has three names. No, the, in in Minnesota. In Minnesota, yeah. he's got three oh, names. I can't think of his name. He played at UK. Um, yes. Yeah, 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 Carl yeah. Anthony, Carl Anthony Towns. Carl Anthony yeah. Towns. There it is. Yeah. The the big blow up that happened between Jimmy and Carl Anthony Towns, where Jim, like nobody's revealing what happened at that practice. But right after that is when Jimmy left Minnesota, and yeah. then he went to Philly, and then when he went from Philly to Miami. But like, there's like this mythology around that practice that Jimmy basically took over and just ripped everybody apart, like kind of Kobe style, how Kobe yeah. would do that kind of stuff, you know. So I think he's like kind of the last like flicker of that early late night late 90s early 2000s type of player like kobe and and mike were you know who i loved <clears throat> i love i was a jordan fanatic loved him but yeah you, you know who i loved like from that level of and i say it like dog iverson yeah. oh. <laughs> i fell in love with i fell in love with iverson at georgetown and only yep. because they had those killer killer gray uniforms and it was the concord jordans the black the, yep. the white with the black patent leather yep. that was the fr- that was the freshest uniform in college ever yep um but anyhow when he got to the league man and he he, he was like he was a legit thug you know like he was living that yes. life but yes he brought that to the court too when he stepped over ty Lu after he hit that shot against the lakers <laughs> and he stepped over him and just looked at him like he dropped the body like that was the shit that got me fired up. I was a Rodman fan. That was the role I played on my team. I was not necessarily a scorer. I was a defender, passer, rebounder. You mm-hmm. know, like just hold the line, set blocks like you're trying to dislocate people's jawbones. You know, and mm-hmm. uh, I love that. I embrace that because I wasn't going to shoot better than my buddy Clay. I wasn't going to shoot better than my buddy Troy. But you know what? I took pride in getting rebounds, and I took pride in like getting dirty. 
And uh, our coach, if you took two charges in a game, you got a steak dinner. And I told him just to hold them. I said, <laughs> take me out at the end of the season. We'll get a real nice one. And that's what I took pride in that shit. Like, I, I wanted the most yeah. floor burns. I wanted to take the most charges, you know, and rebounds. Those are my three things. Floor burns, charges, yep. and rebounds were the three I cared about. And if you get a kid, not just hyping myself up, but if you can find a kid that values those three things, yeah. they, ain't just, they ain't just grew up playing video games. You know, those three yep. things are hard as shit. And uh, yep. that's what I always look for. Like, in any kid when I coached, when you walk in a weight room, you know those kids immediately. They're different. They're different, you know? Yep. But yep. To, to pivot exactly. away from that stuff, I want to ask you a question. All right. Yeah. What is the most scared you've ever been in your life? Mm most scared well i opened my eyes and the penis was coming at me no i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> oh my most, gosh the most scared i don't i never i'm scared, trying to dog never scared i never scared <laughs> i'm trying to think like if it, it am i am i thinking i'll give you fear example. for my you life example. scared like fear for my life type scared yeah Man, we had, I had a couple of close, close calls in a vehicle one time. Yeah. Like, I mean, just as like a, a one-off example, like that there's not really a great story behind, but yeah. just goofing off with friends in high school, driving like we shouldn't have been, you know, and yeah. coming up over a country road, a hill on a country road. And there's another one coming at you. You realize you're kind of drifting into the other. I mean, there's like a couple of moments like that where we literally had to like pull off the side of the road and everybody just kind of sit there in silence for a couple of minutes because we're like, okay, well we dodged, like we had, we had some hands on us in that one. You know what yeah. I mean? Like Dude, I, there was, there's been a couple of those type of moments. I had a story exactly like that. Me and my buddy, Dustin, this was back in college. You know, we, we were going to party, you know, we'd, we'd already like made plans. We're driving to Lexington. We're going to get some food. We're going to go meet some friends and it's going to be a good night. Well, I'm in a red 2001 Toyota Tacoma, stick shift, single cab, crank windows. We're driving down the road. So, you know, the bed of this thing's light as hell. Well, it starts snowing and I'm like looking around. I'm like, holy shit, I can't see. I'm like white knuckling the, the steering wheel. It's, it's just a blizzard. And next thing I know, like there's cars, freaking semis passing us. I can see headlights. I can see taillights. I, I hit something in the road, like the, like a black ice or something. And dude, we just start spinning, like just doing donuts down the interstate, going like 70 miles an hour. And like, literally we talk about it to this day. Every time I see this guy, it, it comes <laughs> up, this, but it's just like spinning, spinning, spinning. And we stopped. There wasn't another car on the interstate, not ahead of us, not behind us, nothing. And we stopped Holy cow. dead center facing North. We were going North dead center facing North in the middle lane. Like all I had Oof. to do was drop it down, put it in first and take off. Yeah. And it was like, that wasn't even the scariest moment. I've had guns pulled on me a few times in my life. Uh, never, not even the scariest moment. The scariest moment of my life came when I was six years old. So Lake Cumberland is like an hour, hour and 15, 20 minutes away from where I live, grew up. And my family used to go down there and, you know, you swim around. They got a giant freaking waterfall. And this is like 88, you know, this is, this is before, uh, people got involved in their children's safety. 
you know, like <laughs> <laughs> you go down there now, <clears throat> you can't do any of the stuff I'm talking about because they got, they got fences and they got barbed wire yep. and they got all kinds of shit. 88, you could get out there and tiptoe right up to the falls if you wanted, you know? So that's what we did. We're out there playing and there's like a little whirlpool and uh, it's just a natural slide. You can, you know, you see babies sitting up on this rock and mom's holding them down as they go. And then you see kids like me, you know, somebody setting them up there. You slide down and somebody down the way catches you. Well, my uncle Mike was with us and he was, he was one of my favorites growing up. Like he was just always cool, big, strong dude, worked out. <clears throat> and he like said, no, I'll go over this side. So it was a little bit higher. My momentum was a little more. And I'm telling you, we are less than a hundred feet from a fall, like from a huge waterfall. Mm -hmm. So I go down, like he's, he's been telling me to go, but I'm up there like an excited, anxious kid. And I push myself off. Well, his wife, my aunt goes, Mike. And he like looks over at her, but she was meaning like, look at me, I'm coming. Well, he looks over at her and I go right between his legs. This oh. son of a, this, and I was head first. So I'm like hands out head first. And I can see the horizon dip where the falls go over <laughs> <laughs> at this point. No lie. I'm maybe 75, 80 feet. Cause I probably came 15, 20, 30 feet down this rock slide. And he sticks his leg out behind him and hooked my ankle with his foot and then did like a, like a hip curl leg drag and pulled me back between his legs. Oh my gosh. But I, I still remember that. Like I literally thought I was going to die. Like I, like I said, I've had guns pointed at me. I've had knives pulled on me. Never felt as in danger as I did when that happened. And Oof. my family was like, good catch. Good job. Good grab. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Actually that, that made me think of probably my example that I can point to. And mine was when I was younger too. I want to say we were like 12 or 13 and we were, we were camping and we go up to this huge lake. We do like this big two week long trip at the end of every summer before school started. Like we'd bring a couple of friends with us and we'd have like this huge two or three camper like compound right on the lake that we'd spend the last two weeks of every summer. And, uh, we'd have, you know, we had a couple of jet skis. My dad would bring up his fishing boat and we would do like, we'd tube and do that kind of stuff around the lake. And, uh, we had, we were tubing behind, one of the jet skis and my mom was driving the jet ski and me and my buddy Brady were on the tube and it was like just a flat, like it wasn't one of those donuts. It was like just a big flat tube or whatever. And you know, the whole goal when you're pulling people on tube is try and get them off the tube. You know what I mean? So yeah, it's like, yeah. this just big game. My mom, my mom would try her hardest to throw us from the tube and she, and she'd be successful. It'd be like this huge laughing moment. Well, she, she whips us out on the outside of the wake and we, you know, we tumble and we do the thing. We're all laughing and we come up and she's driving around to talk to us and like to pull the, the tube up next to us or whatever, but she's talking to us and she's laughing. And as she's talking to us, all three of us look in the same direction and we see this massive, giant, like leisure jet boat kind of thing, right? <laughs> and it's a big, huge party boat and there's a guy water skiing behind it. And the nose of this thing is like, it looks like it's just vertical. The nose on yeah, this thing is up so high. Like the, you know what I mean? And the yep. dude looking over, it can't see a thing. And he's probably stupid drunk middle of the day on like a Thursday up at the lake, you know, and they're literally heading right for us. 
And so we're, my mom's like, all right, well, you know, hurry up and get on. Uh, like we got to get out of here. Cause I don't know if they see us. And at the time they're still 300, 400 yards off. Like they're, yeah. it look, we're like, there's no way they're not going to see us. Right. And they start getting like crazy close. And we're like, and we, I'm, I'm trying to get Brady. Like we're like 12 and I'm like trying to pick him up and get him on the thing. Like, mom, just go, 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 go. And she like, isn't she like, get on the tube. I'm not going to leave it. And I remember they get like, it's, it's under a hundred yards and that boat's probably going what 30, 40 miles an hour. So, I mean, they close that gap in a matter of seconds, right? Like uh, inside a hundred yards. And this dude has not wavered off this line of coming right at us. One degree is King <laughs> that video, <laughs> like literally looks just like that video. And we're sitting there and, and I just remember like my mom turned around. She just, and the shore is 200 yards to the, to our left or whatever. She's like, boys start swimming. And like, we just start, I mean, as fast as we can. And my mom peels out. And right as my mom peels out, the dude who's on the skis whips outside of the wake and he sees us. The oh, dude shit. that's water skiing behind the boat. And so he's like doing this and he's pointing at the head or whatever. And the guy finally like he literally was just stands up and you can see him look over the front of the boat and see us finally. And then he cranks it over and the guy skis and bails off and goes in the water. I mean, it was like it, it couldn't have been inside. It was inside of 40 yards when they had oh. peeled off and missed. And like me and Brady are just as hard as we can swim in our life jackets going towards the boat. And my mom had peeled around and like, same thing. We got there and we're done. And they, the guy came over, drove the boat back around and apologized to my mom. Me and Brady yeah. were already halfway to the, the beach at that point. But like <laughs> she came back over and we just literally sat there. She gave us a big hug and we're like, Holy cow. That was almost the end. We were about, squashed by that boat it was nuts <laughs> well, dude, you know, to tell you a story and i'd forgotten about this for a long time i've told it over my life but I, I guess it just comes and goes but when you were talking about that um it reminded me back to my neighborhood i guess that's probably what prompted it when i was talking about some of the yeah. kids I, I grew up with well there were these two brothers they were twins i don't want to say their name uh one of them one of them is actually one of the guys i talked about passing away from an overdose um but there were there's actually more than one so I, i'm not nailing yeah. down who it was but anyhow they were uh they were kind of a well-to-do family uh you know they always had the latest video games and like they were one of the first people i ever knew to have a big screen tv kind of thing mm -hmm. and uh i'll move this out of the window for a second and so i was over there at their house and we were playing a video game on the atari and i ended up beating this kid one of the brothers and i knew he was crazy like they had a legit reputation as they would fight a circle saw, right? And they would. Like, I saw it when we would play backyard football and stuff. They were mean as shit. And I'm not talking, like, um, on the bully. Like, they would they wanted to hurt you, you know, like, wanted to fuck you up. Uh, putting, fro like, uh, firecrackers in frogs' mouths and shit, taping them shut and then blowing them up. Like, that's the kind of kids these were. So they happened to live right next door to my Nana and Papa at the time. Uh, I, I lived in a big circle and we lived on the front side. My grandparents lived on the back. So I'd been over there and my parents didn't let me play with them. They were like, you can play with them in a group, but you can't play with them by themselves. Like they'll hurt. Mm -hmm. So I go over there, you know, cause mom and dad didn't have to be asked. So I go over there and I'm playing and I beat one of them at this game. This motherfucker grabbed an ax and chased me up wooden stairs, chopping the stairs behind my leg. Oh I came out of the house. Like I had my tennis shoes were flopping. Like they were coming off my legs. 
I was probably nine or 10. I don't know, eight, nine, something like that. But I'm like running to my Nana's house and she's out there like spraying the water. And like, I am screaming, screaming like, and then he comes around the corner and he's like smiling. He's like, we were just playing, but he put the ax away. So he was like, we were just chasing him. And I'm like, he had oh knives. He had Oh knacks. my gosh. Well, it turns out like he got grounded hardcore cause he busted up these like expensive yeah. wooden stairs. Like yeah. when I took, when I told my Nana that he had an ax, she was like, Brandon, you, you're, you can't tell tall tales. You can't, you can't lie like that. Yeah. Well then his dad ends up telling her, we had to redo the stairs cause my son beat it up with a damn ax over something. And I'm like, it was my legs. It was because I beat him. He was trying to kill me. I remember. Like, That's I what was, I've been saying. I was scared to fucking death because, I knew, like, I, like I said, I knew they were crazy. Um, they, there was rumors out there about them, like, burying bodies and shit, but I didn't know. Oh but I'm telling gosh. you, man. So, anyway. Ugh. That's a good place to wrap it up. Yeah. So, I, I was almost murdered by an axe murderer. Yeah. <laughs> next murdering child yeah uh they, some of the stories that i do know about uh one of the brothers i know stories on both of them they know stories on me kind of thing too but uh man they never got out of their system yeah all that wild never left their system still to Oof. this day jeez yeah. so. all right man we'll call it there for today well i appreciate your patience with uh with the audio and stuff. oh no worries and, and that I was my I apologize. That was my issue yesterday. Yeah. Was my issue yesterday. We have our tech days. Yeah. So, all right, brother. Rolling. All right, man. Drive Thanks. safe. I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. See you, bud. Thanks, guys. It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got great